do my best to, to try to stoke the flames. Um, let's go back and talk about basics. In terms of in terms of Eretz Yisrael, when we we understand that Eretz Yisrael is kadosh, it's a holy place, described in myriad ways. It's the palace of the king of a kadosh baruch hu. It is uh, anybody who lives in Eretz Yisrael. Go look at the last chapter. We'll be quoting it extensively. The last chapter of Ksubos, thirteenth chapter of Ksubos. You learn all about Eretz Yisrael, including the. Uh, one of the more quoted lines there um, that anybody who lives outside the land of Eretz Yisrael, Doma, it's as if, it's similar, it's not quite slightly modified uh, language, it's as if he is an idol worshiper. He's an Ovid Avodazara by living outside of Eretz Yisrael. Conversely, if you are buried in Eretz Yisrael, it's as if the Yerushalmi says you're buried under the Kisya Kavod itself, the, the, the divine throne of glory. That's the godless of Eretz Yisrael. And we learn about it because whatever you're doing, wherever you are, wherever you go, uh, you're always, whatever you're talking about is in Parsha. You go to the Heliga at the end of the Parsha's Achremos. These Parshas are huge. You must uh, memorize them. Uh, at the end of Achremos, we learn about the, um, the list of Arayos, the various prohibitions, incest, bestiality, homosexuality, and otherwise that the Torah uh, holds us to. And then it says, be careful. This and idolatry, which is all uh, symbolized by the prohibition of worshiping the molech, passing your child into fire, uh, to the fire, to the child's death, according to the dominant opinion, um, which symbolizes all idolatry. This, these sins cause... Uh, caused the land to do something quite unusual. The land actually cannot tolerate this kind of behavior. It's so holy that what does it do? What's the verb, the very striking verb that the Torah itself and our parsha uses to describe its reaction to these kinds of sins? Vomits. Art scroll very tastefully says disgorges, you know, because vomit has all kind of like, you know, disgusting um, images that come to mind. But I think the Torah is meant to be shocking. Intentionally, it cannot tolerate misdeeds, sins, especially the sins of sexual impropriety, of idolatry. Can't handle this. The Ramban, the Ramban is a very understandably famous piece at the end of the parsha. He describes how Eretz Yisrael is the place. This is where every yid belongs. We're all coming here, sooner or later, right? Some people are delaying the process. Uh, why then? He says this is the place we keep mitzvahs. The place a Jew keeps mitzvahs. Um, are you obligated to keep mitzvahs in Chutzlaretz? So based in a Medrash, based in a Gemara and Arayos, he says, for sure you have to. You have to keep mitzvahs in Chutzlaretz. You have to stay in the, in the in pra- you have to stay practiced. You've got to know how to do it properly when you get back to the big leagues. You've got to, you've got to practice in the little leagues so you can work your way up to the big leagues. This is, this is the Eretz Yisrael. Says the, uh, says the Ramban. And then he says something interesting. I, did, I haven't said this before, but some of you know me on this topic a little bit. Um, this, this is, this is a, a, an idea that's um, nuanced and profound. He, he points out that when the land vomits its inhabitants, it's not a punishment. It's a necessary reaction because of the very sensitivity of the holy land. There's something, in other words, constitutional about this place that cannot, will not tolerate, and, and, and it's just an automatic, it can't, just like Rashi says, 
that if you feed somebody with a delicate um, digestive tract, you can't, you can't digest certain things, it will vomit it out. That's Eretz Yisrael. Ramban proves an interesting statement. Um, the land, therefore, vomited out the previous nations, the seven Canaanite nations, who were guilty of every kind of depravity and a few, a few extras that you haven't even heard of. Um, the only thing that they, uh, that they say about Canaan is likened to another nation. No, at the end of this week's parsha, you haven't done your Sinai Mikra yet. Mitzrayim. Egypt and Canaan, they have, they have similar qualities in this regard. They knew every possible perversion, every deviation, every deviant, uh, deviant kind of uh, behavior they were guilty of. The one thing the Gemara and Chulin, I always like to quote this Gemara, some of you heard me quote this before too, uh, says, didn't stoop that low, even the Goyim knew not to do this, this thing, what was that? Men didn't actually marry men. I mean, nobody would think to do that. Women didn't marry women, they wouldn't have that. But everything else they did. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, life like that. Anyway, um, they didn't have that, but um, everything else was depraved. But then interestingly, and this is the Ramban's proof. Only in Eretz Canaan, which um, they were interlopers. Really, the land of Canaan, people have this misconception. They think of it originally as belonging to Canaan. After all, the Torah itself calls it Eretz Canaan. That was only because the Canaanian, the seven evil nations, were inhabiting the place. But originally, originally, who did the land belong to? Shame, which means we're rightful heirs. We inherit this land correctly from our ancestors. Shame is an ancestor of Avram Avinu. And, and we're the descendants. So in, in point of fact, it's Eretz Shem, which is Eretz Yisrael. We, uh, it, it's ours. And this land regurgitated the Canaanim. And for the exact same sins, the land of Egypt did not regurgitate, regurgitate the Mitzrayim. And that's the Ramban's very logical uh, proof. He just points out it's not a punishment for the sins. It's inevitable given the quality of the land here. The quality of the land brings out, ideally, the best of its inhabitants. Um, look, I'll just point out something really obvious. You're aware there's this thing called the gap year program in Eretz Israel, and people stark out, right? You may be even guilty as charged, right? People sitting around here. There's something going on here. I mean, it's the air. The Gemara and Baba Basra says as much. What, what does the air of Eretz Israel do? Avira de Eretz Israel. Machim, it makes you smarter. Who, who had the misfortune of, of, of going to Schmutzlaritz uh, during Nissan? So, um, do you have the sense sometimes, I, I can't get, I don't know if this was your experience precisely, but do you have the experience sometimes in the summertime, you, you have this experience, you go back and um, many of you have just moved spiritually in such tangible, clear ways and you go back to the old country, and they, in, in shocking ways, seem to have stayed so much the same. There's like no movement. There's something going on here. I don't know, put in the water, something in the air you're breathing. Yeah, because I'll say that. There is something constitutional in this land that's godless, that's great. So much so that anybody who lives in this land is prohibited from leaving this land. You can come, it's, I always call it the Hotel California, you can check in anytime you like, but you can never leave. We didn't put that in the Derek brochure uh, about that. Do you know that? You're not allowed to leave Eretz Yisrael? You're here. You're in, you're in the palace of the Shlina, right? You can't leave. Oh, oh. So that's, that's, that's of course, that's the answer. Ruba the Ruba, according to the post scheme, that prohibition, but upon some of us who actually live here, 
and we have to define what actually living here. I guess, you know, uh, those of you keeping one day, presumably that means you're living here. By keeping one day, that would mean that you, you fall under this prohibition. Uh, and then you... And then you, you, you're not allowed to leave. And there are exceptions to that, too. Uh, my, wi- my wife is getting on an airplane in, uh, in, about 24, in less than 24 hours to go visit her, uh, her mother, Kibudem, uh, and, uh, and the like. Um, so there are some grounds. But the, the whole concept that you can't leave, why would you leave? Mylene below Moridim. By the way, the really interesting sugya, I really recommend it. It's fascinating. Uh, it'll open your, open your eyes to so many different realities. The whole sugya in Ksubos that I just referenced... Um, starts with a discussion in the Mishnah over divorce and grounds for divorce. If a husband and a wife, one of them wants to be an heir to Israel and the other one doesn't want to be an heir to Israel, them's grounds for divorce. And, and whichever one, the woman could be in the power seat. If she wants to be here and the husband doesn't, she gets to call the shots. And if he won't, he's forced to give her the ksuba. If she won't, she loses, they, they get divorced and she loses the ksuba. Whoever's resisting Eretz Yisrael has their hand is, is, is has the, has the disadvantage. Zach. And so, what if what if I have, what if I'm visiting family who lives outside of Israel? I live in Israel. Excellent, excellent. So let's clarify. Those of us who actually live here are subject to this prohibition of leaving here. Um, if you don't live here, um, and most of you, many of you, are visiting, that's why you're keeping two days, right? So that so you're visiting. Um, so then. Um, you, you can leave. You can leave. Those of us who do leave here, even so, there are a list, and I hope to get to this if, we, if time permits. This is one of those topics that's massive and really interesting. Uh, so I want to get to what are some legitimate grounds of Ethereum. I'll just throw out a few just for so you have a couple in your mind. Um, if somehow the learning Torah is, is uh, preferable abroad, that's grounds. Chazal bring that as explicit hazard. Sometimes that works. Even though the Torah of Eretz Yisrael, the Torah of Eretz Yisrael is the highest, the highest level. But for some individuals, it doesn't always work out. If you can't find the shidduch here, for mitzvahs like kibudah ve'em, there's a whole discussion about sakana. If it's dangerous here, how dangerous? How do you measure that? Very controversial area. Parnasa, another big issue. Uh, does it have to be... You know, does that mean the just because you can't get rich here, maybe uh, that's grounds for not living here? Or does it mean that you don't have to live here in absolute poverty, penury, you know, like you, you just have no food on the table? It's the it's the latter, meaning if you're really going to starve to death, then you can leave. Um, but everything else being equal, if we're yidden and we have our head screwed on properly, we, and especially if you have any historical sense of Klal Yisrael, where we've been. And where we are today, how couldn't you be here? Why wouldn't you be here? As the place is the big leagues. How thrilling. I mean, uh, do, do you remind? I, I, I sat down. Is Jesse here? Jesse Kramer? Jesse and I were eating lunch with um, one, a, a new, a new uh, young student from South Africa. Uh, Tamim is wonderful, wonderful guy. Great neshama. His, his responses. And, and we were talking about being in a show. I had this wonder. He, 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 you know, he, he said, Wow, we're here. We're like we're in your shalim and we're learning Torah. Can you believe it? Do you think that every day? Do you, re- do you count your blessings that Hashem has been mezaki to be alive at a time in history that, uh, that, that you could do this kind of a thing? Um, this day obviously brings... Yoni, you're, 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 give, me, give me just a second. This day, Yom Atzma'ut, brings up a lot of these issues. And um, somebody asked me also, Rabbi, you're a Zionist or you're not a Zionist? Do you stand for the siren? Do you not stand for the siren? And it gets very touchy. People get very emotional. Um, a guy kept his 
shawarma stand open in Tel Aviv. Ichves, right? Shawarma stand open. Guy, 700 shekel fine. He was on all the social media. Traitor, heathen. Keeping his, these people get very emotional. It was during the siren, right? Insulting the memory of the, uh, people get very strung out over these things. Eretz Yisrael. Somebody said to me this morning, Rabbi, what do I tell my family? What does yeshiva do for Yom Ma'ut? It was my idea. I'll, t- I'll take credit for this one. I said to Rabbi Pitam, I said, I don't know. I didn't even know this existed. I said, maybe give out blue and white cookies. So those are, that's on the board. Apparently that's happening. Uh, yeah, blue and white cookies. Um, so, but I, I gave him an honest answer. I, one thing that we do, one thing we'll do, and I, I want to get into Yom Ma'ut. One thing that we, yes, do is... Um, we love Eretz Yisrael. And today, why not? Everybody's talking about it. It's in the air. People are thinking about it. We'll talk about Avas Eretz Yisrael, Yishuv Eretz Yisrael, Kibush Eretz Yisrael. Let's, um, let me do this. Let me set the stage. Let me tell you. Let's, let's describe what are the actual mitzvahs pertaining to Eretz Yisrael. And then I want to tell the story of what is Yom Hatzma'ut. It's interesting for so many celebrants, for so many people who are actually celebrating the Day of Independence, they have no clue what actually went hap- what, 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 what happened. What are, the techni- what are the particulars of the day and what does it symbolize? A little bit, little bit of information on that. Um, and, then, and then I'll take a question. Quick question first. So there is an elaborate discussion. You'll find it in Megillah. What, what to what degree did Eretz Yisrael still, still have the same Kedusha? Um, when Yoshua first entered Eretz Yisrael leading the Jewish people, he established Kedusha that had practical effect um, in, 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 his, in establishing that now the mitzvahs of Tluyas Pa'aretz, the agricultural laws, pertain. And immediately they kept Orla and, and, and the, very, the whole list of, of different mitzvahs. When the first temple was destroyed, um, so then um, that Kedusha was severed. And when Shivat Sion, when uh, really Zerubavel and later Ezra came back and they reestablished the Commonwealth in the Second Temple period, they reestablished the Kedusha. Uh, there's different levels of Kedusha. Yushalayim has a higher standard, has a different standard of Kedusha. Besa Mikdash area has a different standard of Kedusha. The general consensus in a big topic that's not ours precisely today, but I'll give you at least a short answer in that, by Ezra, at the beginning of the second, second temple period, they reestablished the Kedusha, Kitsha Lashaiso, the Kitsha Lasid Lavo, that Kedusha is eternal. And it's it sustained from then until today. Despite what happens, despite the fact that the land may be regurgitating some or all of its inhabitants, we've had a tough go, if you know the history of the last 2,000 years in Eretz Israel, not always successful. Idealistic people tried to come, uh, didn't always work out. I just in this week's parsha, the, yeah, one of the molech was the name of one of the different sundry uh, kinds of idolatry. That discussion about what it was, it, the consensus seems to be it's the Gemara in the seventh parak of Sanhedrin talks about it. Um, they would actually bring their child and um, they would wave it in the fire till the child burned to death. Um, the pagans and some Jews join this force and this is a grievous Isidiraisa of epic proportions and that's one of the reasons why the land regurgitates us. The, earlier this year we talked about this. We actually went there. We, we, we looked at it. Where is the chief location for this? We have many psukim talking about the worship of Molech since you bring up the tangent. Where was this? A certain valley. We spent, the Shab- we spent a Shabbos, uh, Shabbos evening hiking there. Gay Ben Inom. 
Gehenim was, was rife with worship of the Molech. Um, there was a famous king as a child who was actually passed to the Molech and because a one-time creation, the Salamandra creation, the mother smeared all over him, uh, this protective um, uh, part of the, this, this animal, uh, he, was, uh, he was protected. His name? Chizkiyahu. The great Chizkiyahu was saved. His, he was offered to the Molech. Back to Eretz Yisrael. Um, the mitzvah, what, what are the mitzvahs of Eretz Yisrael? What does the Rambam say? You know the stuff, huh? These are like basic, this is basic Judaism stuff. The Rambam, Rambam from last year's year? Rambam doesn't count it. As, as in, in his listing of the Tariq mitzvahs, it doesn't seem to mention it. There's huge literature. I could give a whole shir on that alone. I'm not going to. On why the Rambam doesn't mention it. He meant it. He didn't say it. Eretz Yisrael. What is, what is the dimension? What is, is there a mitzvah involving Eretz Yisrael? Some say that um, being in Eretz Yisrael is so axiomatic to every Jew. Of course, the Rambam assumes that that's how a Jew is keeping the mitzvahs. The Ramban, where the Rambam doesn't go, the Ramban does go, establishes that it's not one, two explicit mitzvahs de Uh They are, do you know what they are? They're, one kind of leads to the other. Can't have one without the other. Al-Ali Regal is within Eretz Yisrael, but it's not about Eretz Yisrael, but Gadol. There is, what is it? Shemitah is one of the agricultural laws that's only relevant in Eretz Yisrael, but there, with, vis-a-vis Eretz Yisrael and my obligation, there is an obligation to conquer the land that's called Kibush Haaretz. That's one mitzvah of the Tariag of the 613. And then there's an obligation of Yishuv Ba'aretz. Then once you've conquered it, you must live here. And you must live here and you must keep mitzvahs here. There is a, there's another machlokus in the, in the Tanaim, between the Amoraim, between all the post-game over the days. Should you, if you're living in, outside, should you send your body for burial to Eretz Yisrael? And um, there are pros and cons. The Rambam is one of the big detractors of this practice of people sending their bodies to Eretz Yisrael. He said, we need living, good Jews with proper midos, midayik in the, in, in, in the Shulchan Aruch, well, the Rambam didn't say Shulchan Aruch, but midayik in the mitzvos, um, living in Eretz Yisrael, we don't need your corpse. It's not necessarily helping Eretz Yisrael. He was against the practice uh, back and forth, but that already tells you that like, this is really where it is. This is what we're supposed to be doing. This is how we bring the geula by coming to Eretz Yisrael, keeping mitzvos in Eretz Yisrael. The converse, keep in mind, is also true. A Jew who's here, who's violating the Torah, who's uh, doing some of the grievous sins that we just mentioned, the Arayos of Odazaris, Vichus Damim, and, and the many other terrible sins who's here in Eretz Israel, better that they should actually leave. Go to the San Fernando Valley, the biggest concentration of Israelis outside of Eretz Israel today. There's an Israeli radio station there. Uh, but actually, yeah, they're damaging not just themselves, they're damaging the whole world by doing sins in Eretz Israel. It's scary. This is one of those areas, it's such an emotional topic. You have to be careful, I realize, too, with your family, with friends. I don't even know where you're all holding on these, on these subjects. Um, but it's a scary topic. People get very inflamed over it. Uh, you know, you hear secular, not just secular, sometimes Dati Jews, they'll say, you know, better to be a secular Jew in Eretz Yisrael than somebody living, you know, keeping all the missus in Borough Park. That's, the, that's part of, you'll, you hear that statement? Some of you must have heard that statement growing up, no? No. The people, people speak like that, and a lot of them. But quite the opposite. No, no, and it's worse to be a secular Jew here. 
I knew a guy who was religious. He came and he's uh, living, he's guarding his, uh, he's, a, he's an army guy and he's guarding his yeshuv. He's living in a dangerous place in the West Bank. And he feels his Avodas Kodesh is no longer really doing mitzvahs. He's guarding Eretz Yisrael, keeping it safe for the Jews. That's his orientation. That's, how, that's his ideology now. That's, that's um, backwards. I, I mean, if you look at the sources. Yeah, Moshe. I love the idea of having a big Eretz Yisrael fight your way into um, you're describing. You're, you're referring to another important topic in the in, in Ksubos about the three oaths. Is that you're, I don't know what you're referencing. Oh, no, I heard like you should like Hashem should pull up the cover, not like we should not like we should not be fighting our way to like like, like Yes, you're referring to something at the end of Ksubos terribly important called the three oaths. Since you bring it up, I'll mention what it is. Is that familiar? Is that part of your vocabulary? Okay. Um, I, I'm really just giving basics here. This is uh, you could say it's a class in Eretz Yisrael, but it's also a class in basic Judaism. If you want to be a knowledgeable Jew. And any time, certainly today, you should know what the three oaths are. Three oaths, based on Sukkim and Shir Shirim, um, were administered to the Jews. The machlokas, what they were exactly. Machlokas, whether they're still binding. Um, but the three oaths are, Jews are not allowed to be Ola B'choma. We're not allowed to take Eretz Israel by force. We're not allowed to rebel against the nations. And the nations are, are subject to one of, the, one, of the, one of the oaths. They, for their part, are not allowed to subjugate the Jews. This part's a little funny. Um, too much. A little bit. Not too much. Um, right? So that's what you're referring to. It's based on that that Satmer, the Satmer Rebbe, or Yol Moshe Teitelbaum, held that um, it's a problem being in Eretz Yisrael on a certain level uh, because we're in violation of those three oaths. Um, towards that end, so you know, there's a lot of literature on this as well. Are we in violation of three oaths by being here? Is it more of a problem that there was an army that aggressively fought to have the country even that's a question. Um, there's a great Rav, uh, whose name you should know, um, who actually said when the British conquered Eretz Israel in what year? 1917 from the Turks. And they took over. And early on in, that, in, that, in their administration, one of their leading uh, politicians, Lord Balfour, isu- issued a declaration in which he said, he said, interesting, if you read the letter, it's a short letter. He said, the Jewish people are deserving of a home in Eretz Yisrael. To which the Balfour Declaration, which is in Zionism 101 class, and every, every, any curriculum that teaches Zionism knows the Balfour Declaration, um, and by which you know that um, the Jews were dancing in the streets. The administrative sovereign power, newly sovereign power, in Palestine at the time, declared that the Jews could have a home in Eretz Yisrael, Based on that statement, Rav Meir Simcha of Dvinsk, otherwise known as the Or Sameach, uh, Paskin, that if the Jews then were to take the country of Palestine, it would not be an aggressive violation. The non-Jewish power here said it was okay to be here, is, what, is, is, the, is, is the position that he took. It's a funny language in the letter. All it says the Jews are um, deserving of a home in Eretz Israel. It doesn't describe if we could have a garage, a backyard, and a doghouse. You know, and how we're all going to fit in that particular home. Meaning, it doesn't really spell out the particulars of what this would look like. Does it mean absolute sovereignty, a political apparatus? Okay, those are other discussions. Um, but the, many people understand that, that um, the, the three oaths that Moshe just brought up are not necessarily as binding uh, or binding anymore with this in mind. The Cyblagon has a different, different position on the three oaths. He said, it's possible that, um, that the pre-state 
Jewish fighting powers, the Haganah, the Etzel, the, the Lechi, and, and um, they may have been in violation by aggressively going against, I mean, the British eventually retracted the Balfour Declaration, especially with their white paper of 1939, and, uh, and, and they, they, they fought aggressively. Maybe that was in violation of the Three Oaths. But then there was the War of Independence, Milchemeth Tashach, which today is very much on people's minds. And um, the Israelis are here. They made a state. So nowhere does it say that living here after the fact is in violation of anything. So for Jews to come here, to be here, people ask if the Satmar Rebbe was, um, still felt that the three oaths were, were, were valid and, 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 and uh, relevant in our days, why is there such a large community of Satmar Hasidim living just up the street? If you walk, if you, you can walk towards uh, Brooklyn Bake Shop, they're right before you get to Brooklyn Bake Shop in that direction. That's your, that's your reference point here too, the bake shops? Yeah. Yeah. Um, right, so, um, so you go there. So how is Satmar here today? So, again, he would say there's no violation of living here. Quite the contrary. They're generally not supporters of the state of Israel, but their perspective is um, they're, do, they're here to keep mitzvahs and learn Torah, and they're doing damage control for which everybody in the end of days is going to thank them. They're going to realize, people that open their eyes and realize, see Hashem and see the Torah and see, see, see the, the, the truth of, of, of the narrative. And uh, they're, again, they're doing the best under, in, in, in a negative situation. What is that? Where would you look them up? You would look them up in the, in the end of, it's in Ksubos An Kuf Yud, Kuf Yud Aleph Amud Aleph. It's at the top of the page. I'm pretty sure I might have gotten off by a daf or so. What are they? There are three oaths that are um, binding, but they're administered to, by Hashem to his, to his subjects, to the people of the, of, of the world. They're based on three psukim. They're abstractions, but they're binding abstractions, and they involve not rebelling against the nations and not, not taking Eretz Israel by force. I, I said them before. I, I, yeah, I went through them. You could listen to the listen to this year again. Yeah, when I was initially responding to Moshe, those I, I, I identified the three O's. Yeah. Oh, these were not these were these were imposed upon us. They were not they were not they were not mutually uh, uh, negotiated or anything like that. I, I'm setting the stage now. This is the background. You have to realize Eretz Israel has been central. Has meant everything to the Klal Yisrael. Uh, again, just, just keep, keep reminding yourself of this. Just picture, can you trace, do you ever hear the family trees? You ever trace your lineage before? Oh, it's a great, great idea to do. You know where you come from, no? Where did your, where did your father's father's father live? You have a sense? Picture, picture that person. If you know your father's father's father, I don't know, your mother's father's mother, I don't care. You know, somebody as far back as you can go, wherever they are, picture yourself in the far reaches of Gullus and then picture their life and then imagine them looking at you today, sitting where you're sitting. Oh, that's extraordinary. Oh, miraculous, the times we're living in. When I spent my first significant time in Eretz Israel, I came from my, I was a secular guy, came from my junior abroad at Hebrew University. And um, they've changed, but the Israelis, the general Zionist uh, approach in the 70s, 80s still was all Jews must be here. They were very, very assertive and aggressive. You still get this from uh, many people who are passionate, Dati Lumi, national religious Jews, less from the secular in the, in the, in the, in the recent decades. They're more into high tech than, nas- than, than their internationalism. But, um, but then it was very pushy. I was this shallow California guy, grew up, went to college in Berkeley, and I came to Israel for the first time. And it was significant for a year. For a year. I'd, I'd, been, I'd been as a tourist before. And then suddenly everybody, everybody I was talking to was telling me, how come you don't live here? I'm not going to live here. Why would I live here? How come you don't live here? Yeah, very pushy. I got into the habit. They were so pushy. I started saying, no, I'm never going to live here. 
So that when I came from my next significant period of learning, this time I was starting to learn Torah a little bit, um, and then my eyes opened and I started realizing where are we in history and what's going on in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, and I came around that by when my parents came, my, my family came to visit me in Pesach, and we're sitting in the room, and I, I, I dropped the bomb, uh, and I said, I- I'm moving here. And my mom and sister were in tears. And then my dad said to my sister, she, he said, she had, she had come a few years before me, he said, you don't remember when you spent your junior abroad in Jerusalem too, you were, you were talking about moving here too, and she looked up through her tears and she said, oh yeah, it's so easy to forget when you're over there. Um, this place is huge. And if we opened our eyes, if we had this consciousness, uh, we would all have some, we, we, we would have some reckoning to do. Uh, I, we mentioned the, the, the sign that Rabbi Pittam put up, you know, talked about the, um, the idea of American Jewish Zionists, which the term is a bit of an oxymoron. If they're Zionists, how come they're not here? If they're so pro-state, what are they not doing here? You ever heard the, you ever heard the, the expression limousine liberal? They're liberals, but they like to do it from the, the safe distance of their limousine. Right, so it's it's similar kind of a concept of an American Zionist. How come you're not here? Um, Are the people like places like Modi and Machabin? What's that? Are the people like Modi and Machabin, like the Americans? American? No, no, I'm not talking about them. That's you're changing the subject. That's a different thing altogether. I'm talking about people. The mitzvah, as we've defined in the Ramban, is to live physically in Eretz Israel. Modin is just great, right? That's great. Um, okay, let's 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 consider the day. Let's consider Yom Atzmut itself. Um, what happened on Hey Er um, Tashach, which is May 14th, 1948? What was the iconic turning of events in the middle of the War of Independence as it was? People consider the War of Independence uh, to have broken out on November 30th, 1947, with the terrorist attack from, on a bus from Netanya to Yushalayim. After... No, the 29th was, you're correct, the 29th was, come on, Zach, you know this stuff. Oh, I, I don't, I actually forgot. Okay, so remember this. 29th was the UN voted in favor of partitioning Palestine, which at least in the, in the eyes of the world internationally, the Jews got a terrible part, but at least part of, um, of Eretz Israel that they could in the future potentially call a home. The Arabs said no, went to war. In the middle of the war, um, the British withdrew. The British, who had been the sovereign power, got in way over their head way quickly. They, they realized it was a terrible mistake. The whole empire was, was imploding. Uh, they were also withdrawing from India and all of its land holdings. Uh, they're, still, they're still withdrawing today. I mean, they're, they're, they're imploding as, as we speak, uh, the British Empire. And um, they were leaving. And um, it was May of 1948 when the Israelis started to... They, they weren't Israelis yet. The... Um, the, the government, which existed, which was in place, that would become the, the state of Israel, started to realize it might be strategically a good idea if we declared sovereignty once the British withdraw. Look, it makes sense. It was strategically a wise move because there was nothing here. The British were simply saying, bye, good luck to you, uh, assuming that it was going to be a bloodbath and that the Jews would lose. There was no chance we could, uh, that the Jews could be su- successful. If you realize what was going on, some of us went on a tour. We were talking about these things in one of the, arguably the greatest battle site of the War of Independence in Castle near Mivaseret. And um, the odds were, every, were totally against us. There were, in Eretz Israel, 
the number of Jews were approximately 650,000. Locally, the number of Arabs were 1.2 million, plus 22 Muslim lands all around and even far away who were against the fledgling non-state of the Jews, um, who, were, who were speaking in absolutely dramatic uh, terms about throwing every last Jew into the Mediterranean. It did not look very good. So with this as the background, the Jews said, you know, let's declare sovereignty. What are the advantages of declaring sovereignty? Yeah, what? So what? Yeah, so then what do you get? UN's kind of useless. They just, they, just, they just issue proclamations. What? What, you're, what you mean to say? Diplomatic legitimacy. You can negotiate. You can import arms legally. You're not just an underground guerrilla organization. You can assert control over your land, sky, and sea you know, uh, territory and be able to say that you're fighting a defensive war and, 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 and many other technical, logistic kind of advantages. That's what they figured. Okay, let's do it. It'll also have a powerful impact on morale. But you have to realize, in May of 1948, if we could teleport back, it looked bleak. The Jews had very little with regards to munitions. The British had outlawed that. You've been to the bullet factory in uh, Mahonai alone in Rehovot, where they had, to, they had to surreptitiously make, produce their mu- very limited munitions underneath a bakery and underneath the laundry machine. Why those two things? Because they had machinery up top that were really noisy, that obscured the sound of, the, of producing the bullets beneath. Uh, that was the situation. Uh, they had nothing. They were fighting on shoestrings. They were starving. They were thirsty. Yushalayim was surrounded on all sides except for the road, which was being strangled. Uh, and there was no water. They had to ration the water in Yushalayim by May of 1948. If you would have asked anybody, do you really think you're going to get a state? They would have looked you in the eyes and said, I don't know. Nothing happened on the day of independence. So what is the day? Why is everybody else outside kicking their, you know, having mangals and, uh, and, and making big celebrations? What actually took place? 4.30 in the afternoon, it was an Arab Shabbos. They did a little early to allow people to travel back for Shabbos, but not much. Uh, if you know the halacha on these things, you should get safely to where your, des- your destination on Shabbos long in advance so that you don't get into problems, problems of Chil Shabbos before Shabbos. But it was on this day, on May 14th, 1948, the British were just about to withdraw finally from Palestine, uh, and a group of Jews assembled in a place you can go to a museum today um, in Tel Aviv on Rothschild Boulevard, Mayor Dizengah's old house, and they declared independence. That's all that happened. Somebody, the, the orchestra played Hatikva upstairs, Hatikva, a terrible song. Uh, Rav Cook objected to it. Rav Cook, who is a passionate Zionist, religious Zionist, but he said the words are written, it was written by a drunkard, uh, who, it's empty in, in, in uh, Naftali Hertz Imber. Uh, and the, the words are terrible. We can analyze them, but I don't, I don't want to take the time for that. Um, he wrote his own alternate national anthem called Emuna. Who can sing the words of it? Nobody knows it. Uh, even national religious people don't know the words. I talked about a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And um, so this is happening on Friday, Arab Shabbos. And then they disbanded. And the next day, the war resumed, and they were attacked by... Iraq and Syria and Jordan and Egypt simultaneously with their uh, fully developed, uh, often guided by British uh, top, top military people um, attacking the fledgling state. It looked bleak. So what does the day symbolize exactly? Not victory. They weren't an independent nation by a long shot. 
All that happened was that they read a document. Have you ever looked at the document? The, the Declaration of Independence. Say it, say it again, yes. What's the same thing happened in the U.S. that we uh, the uh, July 4th or something? There was just a day that the Declaration of Independence. Fair enough, fair enough. But it was a symbolic day. Yeah. But it wasn't that there was sudden boom, victory, or independence. Just to, for the record, people have that, you know, don't, don't have that sense. What was in the document? Did you ever look at the document before? Yeah, good. Right, that's, that's what I'm going to talk about. What he means is this. There was, no, he didn't talk about the uh, ever so faintly licorice flavored liquor. No, it talked about something else. We'll get to that in a, in a, in a moment. Um, what, it, what, what, what the big content, it's a standard form. It's boilerplate. Like there's nothing really interesting in Declaration of Independence, all the kind of stuff you would expect to see, blah, blah, blah. To be like a nation like all of the nations, which is a terrible statement because the Jews don't want to be like all the other nations. We think we're better than that. Um, but there was one point that for days it was dividing all the participants, everybody who was involved in the declaration, all the members of the fledgling not yet state. Um, and that was Hashem. Are you going to mention Hashem's name in the Jewish state of dec- uh, the, the declaration of independence of what's going to be the Jewish state? And uh, the majority were absolutely vehement under no circumstances. We came, was the sentiment. It still is in large parts of the, the country. We came, we drained the swamps, we picked up arms, we defended, we fought, we're here, had nothing to do with the, with, with the so-called creator of the universe, whether they believed he existed or not. The small religious faction within the Zionist regime uh, hotly debated them, and they said, this is our historical claim. They also wanted to put in references to the Tanakh, our great book, to the references to Klal Yisrael's uh, historical longing to be an Eretz Yisrael. Um, ultimately, the document was drafted, and um, all the religious references were rejected. There was a compromise in which uh, the term, like you said, the rock, Sur Yisrael, is referenced in one small paragraph, but Ben-Gurion, when there was a secular guy who was go- screaming about it, Ben-Gurion, uh, who's going to be the, new, the first prime minister, assured him, he said, it's not the creator of the universe, it's not the traditional God of Hashem, it's everybody has their own religion, it's whatever you believe in, that's what Surah Yisrael means. And that's what's being celebrated to a large degree today if the day is symbolic. I mean, you're right, Fourth of July is also symbolic, but what does it symbolize? It symbolizes not military victory, not even remote success because it looked pretty bleak right then. Um, There was reason to be quite pessimistic. And it symbolized a day where they wrote Hashem out of the picture, out of the narrative. So should you celebrate today? So many people who lived through that period and that day um, had mixed reaction, and religious Jews t- included. Um, there were absolutely dati Lumi, national religious Jews who felt that this was the beginning of the unfolding of the final redemption. In fact, that became the nusach in a tefillah that was composed that said in um, modern Orthodox and national religious synagogues around the world, they refer to, they, they bless the state of Israel. Shem should give it uh, strength and, and, and security. And, and they refer to the state of Israel in the one very controversial phrase they call it, the state of Israel. Reishis tzmichas gulasenu, 
the state is the beginning of the flowering of the redemption. So in very clear terms, the national, this is not the secular anymore, but the national religious see that the state of Israel's creation was the beginning of the unfolding of the redemptive era, what Chazal referred to as the ikfasa, the Meshicha, the footsteps of the redemption. Why did they, why, what's the question? So, um, little personal story also. In 1998, I was a Rebbe in Sharm Evesertzion, a colleague of mine who was of the more national religious ideology, and I were talking and thought maybe we should give different views on, the, on Yom Atzmut to the yeshiva. And it was around this time of year. We got up, place was packed, we talked about it, and um, we gave what I'm about to summarize now, why... Uh, why they feel, and he articulated, his name is Rev Lichtman, Moshe Lichtman, um, and he said, because um, with all the problems, and he's not naive, he realizes this is not exactly the redemptive plan that's spelled out in the Torah. It's highly fraught, highly problematic, as you articulated the other day. No seriously religious Jew can look at the state of affairs, the state, the, the Jewish state, and the state of affairs, small s, uh, as it is right now, and say, this is it, we're there. Um, he said, but we're grateful. And we got a certain something out of it. And we think that Rav Cook felt that join forces, they'll see through our personal example of religious Jews how beautiful Torah is, how correct Torah is, and they'll come along. They'll come around. And that eventually this will lead to better things. That's their optimistic way of looking at things. He makes a point, I think a reasonable one. I don't agree with him, obviously. But, um, but he makes a reasonable point. He said, he said, look, in Shemayim, if I go and I find out that I was wrong and I'm held, account, I'm held to account for giving too much akara satov, which is what for me today represents is expressing gratitude to Hashem uh, for, for allowing us to get to wherever we are today, then call me guilty. Fair point. I countered, I said, if it's expressing... Oh, I haven't gotten to the day yet. Let me, let me, let me, I'll say what I countered, but it was at the end of our debate uh, that this came out. Other positive reasons why the day may be seen as a religious positive day, by declaring sovereignty again, you could be more effective. Um, there were many miracles. If you study some of the battles, they don't make sense. The battle we walked through in Castel seems clear siyata deshmaya. Um... Some wanted to argue Hanukkah and Purim were precedents for, uh, for Chazal establishing special days. Why can't we? The tshuva was written by a Rav Meshulam Roth, who was a Talmud Chacham, who wrote that uh, he wrote the original uh, Nusach of the tefillah I just described, and he, he said that today should be a special holiday. And they celebrated it such, and the religious national Jews, at least, um, do it, I believe, those that I know at least, do it quite sincerely, and we should not mock them. I don't agree with them, and I don't mock them because I believe it's coming from a sincere place. Um, let me then give you um, a response on these kinds of questions that are really huge. How are we to know whether this is positive for the Jews, negative for the Jews? Because for everything I just said in there, you know, t- t- trying, to give, trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, you can make a very strong counter-argument, as my whole preamble was, we're in Eretz Israel. We only get to be here if we keep the mitzvahs. If we don't keep the mitzvahs in Eretz Israel, we are in trouble, individually and collectively. You know that it's true. This is the Kol Yisrael or Eivim Zelazem means that if there is a Yid in Tel Aviv, Machal Shabbos, it affects you and me. We can't just say live and let live. I mean, we'd like to, okay, it's not nice. You don't want to impose religion. Religious coercion is very anathema to people. But it doesn't work like the way in the Torah. We're all in this together. 
But that's not the Jewish ethos. We, we understand in the Torah that we're all accountable for one another. And so the situation, the times are very complicated. Um, in its earliest manifestations, the Zionist movement initially was called Chovavet um, Sion, and it was populated, among other members, by the, by the Nitziv of Elozhin, by Rav Gordon of Tel's Yeshiva, by Rav Chaim Brisker, uh, and, and like a, a, an all-star. I mean, Gedoli Torah, we're all part of the Chovavet Sion. I mean, who's not? As we said, this is Eretz Yisrael, we want to come back. Um, when the political realities took over in the late 1800s, fascinating development, the secular moved in and took over the organization, renamed it the Zionist movement. And at this point, Rav Chaim Brisker, whose style of learning the Brisker Shita is the standard in all yeshivas in the world today, regardless, uh, he's so influential in our world. He said to live there, he writes, I'll quote, it's better when you read the actual words, to live under, under the dominion of the Zionist, like you read in kosher meat that's been shechted properly, um, that's been cooked in a, in a, a non-kosher pot. Uh, he said better to give money to a church than the Zionist organization. He says the latter influence on the naive Jews is much worse. The Zionists are much more influential and people fall under their spell. Um, that was much before there was a state. Um, others wrote similarly. Um, the Chazonish felt that this, with, after the creation of the state, he says this is not the beginning of the redemption, quite the opposite. Uh, he, said, he said, this is maybe perhaps the end of the Gaulus and perhaps the last great test that we have to pass, meaning a Nisayon in the hardest sense, before the Mashiach can come. Rav Chatzka Levenstein, the Mashiach Panovich, said the whole idea of Yom Atzma'ut is celebrating personal prowess. Human beings, yeah, we fought the wars, we're the greatest. It's kochiva otzimyadi. I did this, I came, I fought. He said it's a symbol of human in- achievement independent of Ashkocha Pratis and it's writing Hashem out of, the, out of the system. It should have no place in a Jewish home. He said, Rav Dessler, the author of Michta Miliao, said it's a complete mistake of the misguided to think that we're responsible for what happened. It's all Ashkocha Pratis. Hashem runs the show. Somebody asked two years ago, but isn't, I mean, it's, it's all Ashkocha Pratis and there is a state. So isn't the next logical assumption that Hashem endorses the state. I mean, here we are. And, okay, there are many problems, but there's great successes too. Doesn't that indicate Hashem's, can't we interpret that as Hashem's endorsement on some level? Big issue. But no, not necessarily. Sometimes Hashem, Rav Shach said this, does chesed with the people, even if we're not deserving of it, in no way, shape, or form indicates that it's, that it's, it's his endorsement. He never endorses Chil Shabbos. He never endorses sins, particularly not in Eretz Yisrael. And some bring the um, stalemate in the peace negotiations, the impossible social situation, the intense sinas chinam, which is just destroying Klal Yisrael. I don't know if you know what goes on outside here, but the latest round of judi- the, the, the um, uh, protests over the judiciary reform are really not over judiciary reform. It's really all the same old issues. It's religious versus secular. It's right wing versus left wing. It's these issues that are really the subtext to what's going on. And it's not a situation that has an easy, uh, has an easy resolution. Rav Soloveitchik, who one associates with the Yeshiva University correctly till today in the modern Orthodox world in America, for sure, he's considered the Gadol Hador. 
he said that no one can deny from the standpoint of international relations, this insight we said before, that the establishment of the state was an almost supernatural occurrence. However, he said, Rav Schechter quotes him as saying that um, this day is part of the Omer. It's no time to get haircuts, uh, no time to have, uh, we, we're not allowed to get married still. We don't celebrate, we don't sing, and we don't have live music. We don't break into dancing. That's against this whole, he's, he said there's no, the, he, he also doubted the appropriateness of making any change in the davening. I was in another shir when I was at YU. Um, somebody asked for Blau, the mashkiach. He said, but wait, I remember Rav Soloveitchik standing when they were saying hollow. So Rav Blau confided, he said, yeah, he didn't want anybody to know. He didn't want to disappoint the boys, but he didn't, he didn't say hollow. He stood quietly aside learning while they were saying hollow. He didn't want to disappoint them. He knew they, that they were so enthusiastic. But he, he um, from Rav David Holzer's uh, biography of the Rav, um, he quotes Rav Soloveitchik as saying, I'd daven, a regular davening today with Tachanun, hollow without Kedusha Siyom, he says the only precedent is Hanukkah. There's no other halal. This is not, this is not, you don't say halal today with or without a bracha. Rav Soloveitchik Paskin for his community that largely ignores him. Uh, he says, he says, I don't care about the day. I'm quoting him. I don't care about Yom Atzmut. There's no Kedusha Siyom. It doesn't mean much to me. In the, um, today for many Israelis, secular certainly, and even a lot of national religious days, it is a holiday replete with all kinds of rituals. The preface to this Yom Zikaron, the standing for the solemn ritual of the, of the siren, the many different ceremonies that take place in cemeteries, uh, and then today, the, all of the ritual that takes place is done with great um, sanctimony. People wish each other a Chag Sameach. Uh, they, this, if you take the Judaism out of a Jew, you have to replace it with something. They've replaced it with a new Kedusha called uh, the State of Israel. Rav Moshe Feinstein doesn't write about this explicitly. At least, he, at least I didn't think he did. Never talked about it because probably the same thing in America. It's a great insight, very important idea. For, American, for Americans and for most people in, in, in the diaspora, if you're a good Jew, you care. Of course you love the state of Israel. They go together. If you don't, you're either Nature Karts are to the right or you're, you're, uh, you know, you're one of the left-wing Palestinian sympathists on the left, right? So, like, you know, how can you not love the state of Israel so Rav Moshe didn't want to, you know, didn't want to, didn't want to make any trouble and cause any machlokas. He writes, however, in a tshuva, can you have a flag in any shul, American flag or otherwise? And he says, really not appropriate. What do you have a flag in the shul? It's Hashem's place. You know, a flag there. Um, but then he said, better to get rid of it if you can avoid machlokas. If there's machlokas, don't say anything. And he said in this line, he said in an Israeli flag, if you could get rid of it, better to avoid what he called a... Um, the Maisa de Rishayim, the act of the wicked, you should get rid of the Israeli flag too, said Rav Moshe, seemingly, and I'm, my summary here of all, these, of all these statements, there is at best ambivalence, which means mixed emotions about the day and where we're holding in history. And, at, well, and then you have the Satmar Rebbe who said, I'll quote, everything that takes place by Jews in Eretz Israel before the Mashiach comes is de facto a Maisa Satan, is the act of Satan preventing Mashiach from coming. That was Rav Yol Moshe Teitelbaum, the Satmar Rebbe. Not surprisingly, but that was his, his attitude towards the day and towards the state. Um, so what are you supposed to do? What's a good Jew supposed to do? First of all, in the spirit of Rav Moshe, don't make machlokas. Uh, people don't hear these ideas. They're so nuanced. That's why I, I, I heard Rickman spoke about this yesterday. My Rebbe's taught me if I'm out and about and the sirens go off, 
I'm not gonna, I, they're not gonna let me, give me the time of day to give a whole schmooze on the subject why I think what I think. So I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna stand and learn my Gemara or say Tehillim or something like that. I usually make it my issue to be learning in a base medrash during these sirens, so I, I don't have to deal with the issue. But I don't make machlokus with people. Certainly if somebody's grieving over a lost soldier, we have gratitude to a lost soldier. He was fighting, even if it was a secular guy, he didn't know better. Most of these people are ignoramuses, the Tinuk Shanishba, they don't know. And so, of course, your heart goes out to them and their families. You don't want to pour salt on the room. That's how they interpret our indifference. So you don't want to do any of that either. But if you're trying to be an intellectually honest Jew, you have to have a formulated view on the subject. And the only way you can do that is the Gedoli Torah. Um, in a wonderful book called Yimos Olam, written by Raviol Schwartz, who's close to Ravolbi, Revolvi, for size to quote Revolvi, I'm skipping a lot, I, my time is so limited. But he said, he says about all of these events, he said, who can determine with certainty that events of any day, that this is the Aschalt of the Geula? We don't have prophecy anymore, said Revolvi. He said, under these circumstances, you should have humility and say, I don't know. Like the Gemara Brachos says, when you don't know, admit it. And Rav Schwartz, in sync with this, says, you know, really, he gave a parable, a mashal, it's like a sick man who has several serious operations that he still needs to undergo, and he knows it. If the doctor came back with an early preliminary report that maybe there's a way out from here, um, he wouldn't resort to dancing in the streets and celebrating. He would take stock, like a Jew does, when he looks around at the, at the world, figure out what he should be doing better, make tshuva individually, if possible, collectively, and... Um, do our best to fix things. What if you feel like Kara Satov today because the Kaddish Baruch has brought us to this great time in history? And it is a great time with all the complexity. What, what we said before, how, how blessed we are to be in Eretz Yisrael, learning Torah in Eretz Yisrael, down the street from the Makkum of Mikdash, no less. So why not do what Chazal say, which is do the mitzvahs better? You ever look at the words of benching? It's all about Eretz Yisrael, ala aretz satovarash and the beautiful land that Kaddish Baruch gave us. How about benching with Kavana? How about benching? Saying a bracha chrona. It's in the, it's in the short bracha too. People get up from the table. They leave the dining room without benching. How about just doing what Hashem asks? Show us that we're worthy of receiving a, a, a proper geula, a proper Eretz Yisrael. Right? If somebody says Chag Sameach, how should you respond? <laughs> you know what, if it comes to just say Chag Sameach, even though it's technically incorrect, what do I need to prove myself for by being pedantic, right? Uh, you know, you wish the guy well, a little obvious Israel. Um, that, 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 that's, that's, but, you know, in another Pasuk, also in this week's parasha, there is a sense that um, not subscribing to the dominant rituals is somehow hateful. And that you're promoting, you're, you're angry and you're hateful. So our job then is as Jews who care, who want Klai Yisrael to come back to Torah in the most natural, organic kind of a way, our job is to pile up the the, the avas chinam, the gratuitous love, and try to talk and try to teach. And something, a, a common question people are, are, are asking me is, what do I say to my family? How come I don't stand for the siren? What does our yeshiva do? Blue and white cookies? Are you kidding? Right? Is that enough? I, I said, you know what? Talk, explain to them, try to explain, you know, even if you wind up, even if they're disturbed, they're not happy with what you're doing because people are, oh, you're anti-Zionist, if that's the way you interpret it. I don't consider myself an anti-Zionist, by the way. I'm a, I, I try to be pro-Hashem. That's, that's, my, that's my political platform. Um, but, um, but if they call you anti-Zionist, 
get them a little, you know, thinking a little bit. Add some of this, say some of this, some of these ideas. Uh, I only came to this. This is this is the, this is the this is some of the bullet points in a much thicker file that I didn't have time to really say over in in, in, in uh, less than an hour. Um, it's it's a great sugya because among other things, what you do. And what I didn't get a chance to go into is you delve into uh, the godless of Eretz Yisrael and how it makes us better people. Last question. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks for the question. It's a great question. It, it doesn't just apply to our topic. You know where else it applies? Another topic that, I, that, that uh, is, 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 is relevant today is transgender. What are we talking about transgender for? If they don't hear you, if they don't want just to live and let live. Really, they want you to espouse their ideology. That's why in the transgender liberal campaign, they want you to use their pronouns. And if you don't lose your pronouns, you're a hater. So correct. So that's in the same in the same vein. In these in all these topics, you have to stand your ground as a proud Torah Jew. You should not compromise. You should you should um, say this is the Torah, and somehow as best you can. And it's hard. They won't hear it a lot of the time, and that's not your problem. Um, you have to say, I love you, and we can agree to disagree, and I can I can still respect you and see your virtues, but but. Um, but these are the red lines, and this is what this is what I do and what I don't do. I, you know, I, I don't use those pronouns. I wouldn't stand for the siren if, 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 if unless I'm out and about, and I, I I don't compromise where there's a red line. That that's that. I think you have to be clear on that, and be proud to be a, to be a Torah Jew. It's misunderstood. Last last comment. People think people have a misconception, uh, incorrect definition of Chil Hashem. If you do something that winds up alienating another person, another Jew, because they don't like what you do, they don't agree with what you do, that is not necessarily a Chil Hashem. Chil Hashem is when you misrepresent the Torah and you misact the Torah. Quite the contrary. When you're keeping the Torah properly, that's always inherently a Kiddush Hashem. The illustration of that is the, is the major Gemara, Brachos Yud Tesamud Beis, where it says if you're in the Shuk, and you see your one garment you have to put on that day. I don't know why you're only wearing one garment. That's weird. But let's say you're only wearing one garment and um, it's got shatnas in it and you realize that and that's an issue deraisa. You got to take off the garment right now and walk naked in the shuk. And to do otherwise is a chil Hashem. The kiddush Hashem is when you're keeping the mitzvahs. So be proud to be a Torah Jew. Have a great day.